Talk 1110-993 WBT. It's the Pete Callender Show. I'm the Pete Callender of that show. And uh, the number is 704-570-1110, 1-800-WBT-1110. And uh, the email is Pete at thepetecallendershow.com. And Sandra Neal, the president of the American Pharmacists Association, will be joining me at the bottom of the hour after the bottom of the hour news. We'll be talking about covid and the, the vaccines. And I've got some questions. Hopefully she can answer. We'll see how it goes. They offered her to me. They offered her to me. So we'll see. All right. But before we do that, let me uh, let me talk a little bit about the state budget. No, I'm kidding. It's uh, just real quick. Ray Martin had a piece. Ray Martin is a former press secretary for uh, sp- uh, the, sp- uh, the uh, Senate president pro tem. Phil Berger, and he's now a partner with Jim Blaine at uh, Raleigh Consulting Firm, political consulting firm called The Differentiators. And so Ray had a a piece published at the News and Observer, an op-ed, and he says everybody wants a budget passed. The governor really needs one. And I thought this was interesting, something to keep an eye on, because I mean, this is actually pretty late in the game for the state not to have a budget. House has a budget proposal. Senate has a budget proposal. They're supposed to work it out in a conference committee. Then, uh, you know, they they take it to the full bodies. They uh, they vote on them. Then if if approved, it goes to the governor. He can veto it. And if the governor vetoes and the General Assembly cannot override his veto, then the current budget stays in place. Now, in the past couple of years, because Cooper has vetoed a budget like every time, um, the legislative leaders, what they do is they put together what they call mini budgets and they do just little portions of the budget. Stuff that everybody agrees on. So there has been these little mini budgets over the last few years, but we haven't had a brand new full budget adopted. OK. And. um Ray Martin says he thinks that a grand bargain is possible in 2021 and may even be likely because for the first time, Governor Cooper really needs a budget. Why? He says the obvious reason is that the state has not had a comprehensive budget uh, for the things like uh, or things like teacher pay raises that come with it since legislative Republicans overrode his 28 budget veto. Right. Cooper has vetoed. Teacher pay raises, what is it up to now? Five times, I think, something like that. He keeps vetoing them, and he keeps using teacher pay raises as leverage to get Medicaid expansion. And I'm not going to get into Medicaid expansion. Uh, I know, like, North Carolina is one of the only states that hasn't done it yet. Um, but they're doing other, doesn't matter. I'm not going to get into the topic, but this has been his thing. He has, That's why he brought Mandy Cohen here, by the way. Mandy Cohen was running... The the national, was it CMMS or whatever, the Medicaid services portion? She was up there. She was an Obama uh, administration person. She was running the system at the national level. And he brought her here to expand Medicaid. This was what he his stated goal was. They had a plan, and it hasn't happened. So he's been trying to use it to force, uh, or he's been trying to use the teacher pay raises to force Republicans to approve Medicaid expansion. All right. Uh, Cooper according to Ray Martin, who plays a shrewd political long game and is as image conscious and cautious as any statewide elected official of his generation. He needs a budget deal 
for personal reasons. He has accomplished little, if any, of his agenda. No major teacher pay raises, no Medicaid expansion, no big bond package. And this gubernatorial legacy, along with any hope of a national political future, may well rest on his ability to hammer out a deal. I would say this deal, because you're not going to get another chance at it. This is the last time for a big budget deal. Martin goes on to say that Cooper made a calculation when he took office. Knowing that Republicans with legislative supermajorities had the votes to beat him during his first two years, he largely refused to compromise. He took his losses, he vilified the legislature, and raised a bunch of money in the process, using them to do so, and he helped Democrats break the supermajorities that the Republicans had in 2018, right? And by the way, I saw this, just as a side note, I saw this same approach being used at the local level in Asheville when I was working up there for the last nine years or so. This is what the city council was doing, too. They were blaming Raleigh for everything, even on things that were their fault. They refused. This is, I mean, there's, uh, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but the Asheville City Council and, and city government refused to fund core services. By the way, the city manager up there now is Deborah Campbell, the former, what, assistant city manager here in Charlotte. And um, so she's up there now, and they had refused to fund core services for so long. And uh, they were blaming it this, when the legislator beca- legislature became supermajority Republican. They started blaming the legislature for it. They said they're the reason why we can't, you know, have roads resurfaced. How is that possible? How is it? How is it Raleigh's fault? Because they were like, well, we need to annex everything and we need to charge differential water rates for people outside city limits and all this stuff. Anyway, I'm not going to go, like I said, too far down that rabbit hole. But this tactic or strategy was being implemented all over. This wasn't just uh, uh, Roy Cooper's strategy. Having succeeded on all fronts, Cooper doubled down in his second two years after 2018. So he uses his veto to force a government stalemate. He blocks most Republican priorities while raising political money and then working to flip the legislature in 2020. That was the bet. His bet was simple. Win Democratic majorities in 2020, and then that would allow him to not only undo a decade of conservative reforms, but also advance a bold liberal agenda. Which, by the way, I think it's interesting to note here, a decade of conservative reforms after a century and a half of Democrat rule in this state. If successful, the plan would have thrust Cooper into the national spotlight as the country's only popular progressive southern governor. That was the long game. And this is what Ray Martin, by the way, does. This is his profession, right? He is a political consultant. So he understands, like, this is, if you're looking to the future, this is what you're doing. You're lining up these two-year increments all in, you know, in the hopes of parlaying it into uh, a, a larger run, another office, maybe a vice presidential appointment or nomination, I should say, right? Alas, voters had other plans, expanding Republicans' majorities, and then Cooper lost his big bet. Now, with little to show from his first term, Cooper finds himself buffeted, not just by the national headwinds that historically make midterm elections difficult for the president's party, but a bunch of bad news for Democrats heading into 2022.
News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Ray Martin, former press secretary for Republican North Carolina Senator Phil Berger. Now he's a partner at The Differentiators, a Raleigh political consulting firm. He's a contributing columnist at the uh, McClatchy Papers, so the News and Observer up in Raleigh. And he wrote a piece the other day, an op-ed, Everybody Wants a North Carolina Budget Passed, The Governor Really Needs One. And he outlines how Cooper was betting, essentially, on winning Democratic majorities in 2020. Right, So he comes in in 2016, in 2018, raises a bunch of money, helps break the supermajority, the veto-proof majority that the Republicans had enjoyed. Then in 2020, he wins re-election and was hoping in 2020 to flip the chambers, and he didn't do so. Did not happen. Um, and uh, the, if he had, then Martin says the, that he could have advanced a liberal agenda. The plan would have thrust him also into the national spotlight. And maybe get him, you know, I mean, I'm saying this probably, you know, get an appointment from, you know, Joe Biden for something or maybe land on a presidential uh, ticket or something. Right. You never know. Um, But in 2020, Democrats actually lost ground. They lost seats. Republicans expanded their majorities. Cooper lost his big bet. And so now he doesn't really have anything to show for his first term. And he's now running in the midterm, or not running, he, uh, his legislative colleagues, they're running in the midterm election. And at least in recent history, right, your midterm elections, not exactly a great time for whatever party controls the White House. That's just how people historically vote. Whoever's in the White House, their party loses seats in that first midterm election. And that goes all the way down ballot. And so... That's going to be difficult for Joe Biden's Democratic Party in 2022. And you got a bunch of bad news going into this election year. You got the Afghanistan debacle. You got the Delta variant and whatever variants come after that. Inflation, a stalled recovery, and a precipitous decline in President Biden's job approval. Now, that can all change. Obviously, we're a year out, right? Who knows what the election is going to turn on? There could be some other issue that pops up. An unforgiving electoral environment for Democrats combined with redistricting will give Republicans a chance to regain veto-proof super majorities. They do have a chance here. The Republicans do have a chance. So for all the people that are like, it's all rigged, I'm not going to go, you're just screwing yourselves over. You're going to, yeah, every conservative uh, or even moderate, right-leaning, anybody Republican, everyone's going to need to go out and vote Republicans into super majorities if you're going to hope to get anything across Cooper's desk in his last lame duck two years. Um, and by the way, if that does happen, you might see more bipartisan stuff because Democrats might actually sign on to things because Cooper's a lame duck. But if Cooper remains powerful enough with a veto, then you're still going to have gridlock. I mean, that's the thing that's kind of the kicker here is that Democrats. They don't really uh, they don't really deal with Republicans. They never try to cut deals with Republicans, it seems, at the legislative level. This happened in the um, what was it? Oh, uh, the the critical race theory uh, hearing. Remember where the lieutenant governor was up there and one of the state senators, uh, Jay Chaudhary, starts saying like, oh, you know, how come you didn't ask us? You didn't work with us. You got no input from us. And 
Lieutenant Governor Roberts, it was like, you know where my office is. You never reached out to me. Like this idea that the Republicans are supposed to go to the Democrats as the minority party. They're supposed to go to the, the party not in power and be like, hey, you want to work with us on this stuff? I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying if you're the minority party and you want to try to get something done, you need to be going over to the majority party and asking for some help. Uh, State Representative Jason Sane has talked about this. I've uh, interviewed him over the over the years, and he's now become a pretty powerful legislator. And uh, he worked on a body cam bill for uh, with a Democrat. Because like he, their goals were aligned, and a Democrat—I forget what representative came to him—and he was talking about how he, you know, this guy shows up and says, "Oh, do you think maybe we could do something with the body cam?" And he's like, "Yeah." He's like, "We can do that. Like, we want body cam footage in Lincoln County too. So yeah, we could work with you on that." But if you don't ever show up to the guy's office to ask, how is he supposed to know that you're interested in getting something done with the Republicans? And frankly. Uh, Governor Roy Cooper has spent a long time threatening his Democratic lawmakers, his colleagues in the legislature, that they're not going to be part of any kind of governing uh, uh, coalition that Cooper builds if they work with Republicans. He's been doing that since HB2. So, yeah, like you have all these opportunities to work in a bipartisan fashion, and they've just rejected them along the way. So. Uh, so this idea that like oh the Republicans are the bad guys it's not it's it's not true. Um, it's not to say that they're blameless on any of this. I'm just saying if you want to work in a bipartisan fashion, you got to take the first step if you're the minority party. Okay, so uh, back to Ray Martin's piece um, to, to to give Republicans a chance to regain veto-proof supermajorities, which would relegate Cooper to lame duck status after the 22 election, and it would close the door on any other big ticket accomplishments that could bolster his resume for a much rumored spot on a national ticket. I thought this part was interesting um, because I have heard a rumor that Roy Cooper's wife is not interested in going to Washington, D.C. Don't know if it's true, but that's the rumor I have heard. Uh, So Martin says this might be the last time that Cooper brings any kind of leverage to the negotiating table. This is the last time he can pivot, cut a deal, salvage some of his agenda and the governor's history of calculated political decisions indicates that he might just take advantage of it i applaud ray martin's optimism i on the other hand would put my marker down on him not changing his ways i think he's going to be happy to just retire and be a kingmaker in the democratic party like a new jim hunt just my just my guess what do i know News Talk 1110-993-WBT, the Pete Callender Show. And I want to welcome to the program Sandra Leal. She is the president of the American Pharmacists Association. Welcome to the program. How are you? Uh, thank you for having me. Certainly. So did I pronounce your name correctly? I apologize if I did not. Oh, no, you did. Thank okay, you. great, great. So uh, tell me first, what is the, uh, I think I can guess, what's the American Pharmacists Association? Um, so the American Pharmacists Association is um, the group that represents pharmacists across the United States on different issues related to pharmacy. Uh, so a lot of the things that we're working on right now have been around COVID, testing, COVID vaccinations, and really keeping our pharmacists up to date so that they can provide the best information and care to patients. So the organization is uh, it, it put out a statement and they're making you available that you're you're wanting people to get vaccinated. 
Um, and so I, I guess I should ask first off, uh, why do you think people are not getting vaccinated? Why, why aren't we seeing an increase in the numbers that people think we should be seeing? So uh, the good thing is we're starting to see people that were a little bit more hesitant now starting to, you know, actually vaccinate. There has been a lot of misinformation and some just hesitancy because uh, of the concerns they've had around the vaccine. Uh, but we are starting to see that we're making a little bit of a dent on this vaccine uh, concern because of the Delta variant, which has been so, so serious. Uh, and so uh, what we want to do as pharmacists is make ourselves available to ask and answer questions for those that are still on the fence because we want to make sure people have the information they need to get vaccinated. What are the questions that folks are generally being presented with? So um, I think in general, patients are asking a lot about questions related to the speed of the vaccine. Why did it get approved so quickly? And so we've been able to answer that question by just reviewing how the process of the vaccine occurred and that no steps were missed in the process. Uh, a lot of people have not heard of mRNA, and we talk a lot about how, you know, mRNA has been something that has been studied for 20 years. So it wasn't really new. It was just utilized in this way, and it was studied. And then the pharmacists are also sharing their experience. Um, we did a survey with all pharmacists to see about their own acceptance to the vaccine, and well over 90% of pharmacists uh, either have already received the vaccine or were in the process of receiving uh, receiving the vaccine. And we know that when we trust you know, anything, medications or vaccines as pharmacists, it's really important that we can speak to it, speak to the safety of them, and that we can provide that confidence to, to people that have concerns. So uh, I can relay some of the concerns I've heard from people in discussing this topic uh, quite a bit is, uh, so like number one, I have heard the, the the speed at which it was approved. They said, oh, it's not FDA approved. Uh, but now it is, of course, um, and that hasn't convinced, I think, really anybody that was saying that at the time. I think that was kind of just like something that a lot of folks said. It wasn't; They weren't really relying on the FDA approval. Um, the thing that I hear now a lot is the side effects. They are very concerned about side effects that they see being reported. Uh, they, they see reports of deaths uh, as reported to VAERS. They also see uh, or they also question uh, the long-term uh, impacts on people's health when we don't know what these are going to be potentially down the road. So what are, what's your response to those concerns? Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we've looked at when we've looked at previous vaccine science is that most side effects of a vaccine occur very, very early in administration. So within six to eight weeks, we have months and months of data and millions of people now vaccinated. In fact, I myself participated and volunteered to be one of uh, the study participants for the vaccine. So I received my vaccine uh, before the end of last year. And almost on a weekly basis, I receive a call. I have uh, lab work done to, sh- to basically to show the safety, to monitor how effective the vaccine is. And so I speak from experience being part of the study. Um, so, you know, that's the kinds of things that we want to share with people so that they know that that it is very rare. I don't think we're going to see any, you know, issues five years or 10 years down the road because we see it almost immediately upon administration of the vaccine. And although... You know, the vaccines have had, we've seen some reports uh, of certain side effects. When you look at the number of people vaccinated and the number of people who've uh, experienced any issue, even in those people that have experienced issue, a lot of times it's reversible. So it's not something that's a permanent issue um, and that we see that people actually, you know, improve and resolve and that they still receive the benefit of being vaccinated. 
I do also say, you know, when we looked at the information that was published earlier this week, one in 500 uh, Americans have died of COVID. And so the consequences of COVID deaths are obviously more significant. And one thing that we don't talk enough about is the symptoms of long COVID. So people that don't die, but experience these very significant issues, kidney impact, fatigue, brain fog, all of these issues around long COVID that we are not even talking about. And so when you look at all of that together, the benefit of that vaccine far, far, far exceeds uh, having COVID or having the consequences of COVID. So uh, if, as I understand it now, and I was, I'm vaccinated and I remember them saying like, this is how you get back to normal. And if you get the vaccine, then you, you, the chances of getting COVID are very, very low. And now it seems like, oh, actually you can still spread COVID. So if that's the case, um, why, like, what's the practical difference between getting the shot, not getting the shot, if we both can spread it? Isn't it just mainly like a protective measure for myself? Absolutely. It is a protective uh, method for yourself and to also make sure that you don't end up sick and then create issues like for capacity, for example. Here, I'm, I'm located in Arizona, and we are now having issues where people are not able to get into the hospital for routine uh, visits. And we had a person just reported that they died. They called 43 hospitals, couldn't get them in, and they died not of COVID, uh, but because the hospitals were full of people in the ICU uh, that were not vaccinated, unfortunately. So it is important to make sure that you're taking um, protections for yourself and then hopefully leaving space for others that might get sick. And that's, you know, that's the key message that we have to definitely think about the the impact on our community and not just uh, think about, you know, what's essentially what's good for me only, but really think about the community benefit. So I have a question from a listener who is asking, do you have any comment on pharmacies declining to fill prescriptions written by doctors for, quote, unapproved medications for treatment of COVID? I guess this is the story about uh, pharmacies refusing to fill ivermectin uh, prescriptions. Yes, absolutely. So the pharmacist makes a clinical judgment based on the information that they have, based on the data, and um, and they can determine whether or not they want to fill a prescription based on that information. Now, it's not to say that, um, you know, they're just declining them for no good reason. There are, you know, all pharmacists are looking at data, they're looking at clinical judgment, they're looking at the patient, and they're trying to make the best assessment possible and make a clinical decision based on that. Uh, it is a pharmacist's obligation to make sure that the prescriptions that they're filling are appropriate for the patient and that they won't cause harm. At the end of the day, the pharmacist's goal, much like every other healthcare professional, is to make sure the person has the best outcome possible with the medications that are being prescribed. Right, but isn't that the doctor's role? I'm sorry? Isn't that the doctor's role? They, they determined after, um, uh, after you know, an examination and discussion with the patient, like, they made that call. Um, they can, but there are things that maybe the, the provider didn't catch. For example, if a person has a kidney condition, for example, and they prescribe a drug that could make the kidney uh, function be worse, it is um, our duty as pharmacists to make sure that we're a, another level of defense uh, to protect the patient. So we work in collaboration with the providers and we communicate almost on a daily basis if we find anything that could potentially cause harm to the patient. 
sometimes the patient doesn't maybe tell the doctor certain information that they would have told us, not because they're not trying to, but maybe they didn't have an opportunity or things happen, or maybe they're taking an over-the-counter medication that could be interacting with a drug that the provider didn't know about. And so it is our obligation to make sure we have the full picture, make sure that we're working in the team to make sure the patient has the best outcome. So the pharmacists are a line of defense to protect the patient uh, from things that could potentially cause harm. Uh, Sandra Leal, the president of the American Pharmacist Association. We're out of time. I appreciate you uh, joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. Take care. I thought that went pretty well. I wasn't sure. I'm still not. I'm still not sold on the whole. I'm your pharmacist. I can totally like overrule your doctor i'm still not i'm not on board with that let me go over here to robert i think robert's yeah i think robert's in line with me on this hey robert welcome to the show what's going on hey man i just wish you would have asked her the question that if she's going to say that it's their responsibility to overrule the doctor on this stuff then why didn't they you know protect the patient when they approved all the opioids that they you know put out there like Kit Kats? right yeah No, it's a great point. And Robert, like it was the very end of the interview. We had her only for the, what, eight minutes or something. And uh, we couldn't push her past 45. But um, I have all these other questions. I did not, like I did not intend, I didn't think she would say what she said. So that's why I asked the other question. And her explanation left me thinking like, wow, I could do like a whole other segment on that idea alone and right I, and i and i just couldn't that made no sense I yeah mean, you know like i said they pass it out opioids like kick cacks it's killed more people i believe than the COVID has and nobody said nothing about that and the reason that they didn't is because of money yeah it's an interesting yeah it's an interesting concept like that the pharmacist would know the person in front of them better than the doctor would and i don't know about you but like i get my prescriptions filled at like you know CVS, Walgreens, whatever. Like I, aside from one guy back in Asheville who knew me from the radio because he was a listener, I've never known my pharmacist. So any, all, uh, all they ask you is you, what's your address? Right, birth, date of birth, and are these your prescriptions? Do you have any questions for the pharmacist? And unless they're referring to themselves in the third person, they're talking about somebody else that I'm not even seeing. So. I don't. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not on board with that, Robert. I appreciate the call. Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's a great point about the, uh, the opioid uh, uh, prescriptions. Let me go over here to Kent. Welcome to the show. What's up, Kent? Hey, Pete. Uh, your last guest was really cagey about ivermectin mm-hmm. and and what happened there. I, I'd like to kind of sound you out. What's your understanding of ivermectin? I enjoy eating horse paste. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah. No, the I am the dewormer. The horse dewormer. Yeah, that's right. The dewormer. Right. Like, all right. So, so my and I've said this before, and and I mean it when I say like we're either practicing battlefield medicine or we're not. And I try to apply that in all cases. So if somebody comes forward and they're like, "Hey, we've got this." you know, hydroxychloroquine and zinc and the Zelen- uh, what was it called? The Zelenko protocol, like. I want all of that. I'm all of the above. I want all the therapeutics. I want people to try whatever they can. And if something works, then spread the word and save lives, right? So if ivermectin can work 
in whatever protocol they've developed and, you know, it's got to be delivered in a certain way or whatever. Like, because now I'm seeing stuff about like a nasal therapeutic as well. Like you could spray, uh, was it like, I don't, I forget what it is. It's like a nasal inhaler deal for the nose to help reduce the viral load. Like do it like all of the above. Well, um, the government has just scared, uh, everybody to death about prescribing ivermectin that the pharmacist example is an example of that mm-hmm. and doctors are afraid to prescribe it but uh, i just read a report recently about how in the indian state of uttar pradesh that has prescribed ivermectin prophylactically you take uh, take a small dose once or twice a week they virtually eliminated covid deaths in India, mm-hmm. whereas uh, the Tamil state, another state in India, which refused to use ivermectin, still has a high number of deaths. And that's the kind of news that's being suppressed. You know, uh, ivermectin was invented in 1975, and it's been used for years. The, the inventors of it won a Nobel Prize. Uh, it's old, it's safe, it's well-established. And there's it's uh, a man. It's actually mandatory. uh, It's a mandatory part of the the regiment. When people come to America, it's an antiviral that they give them two doses of this stuff on the way in the door. Refugees. uh, Well, good. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So sounds like what they use it for. Yeah. But I I urge your your listeners to Google FLCCC, which is uh, the site for a group that recommends an ivermectin protocol. Gotcha. And they also show where you, where you can get it from Canadian pharmacies at a reasonable price. But I tell you, Pete, uh, the cheapest I've seen those pills is about a dollar a pill, and I've got the horse deworming paste in my <laughs> desk drawer, and I, fi- I figured out how much I need to take, and I don't mind a bit taking it. It's, it's, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a pharmacist, but it's the same dang drug. All right, I got you, Kent. I, I appreciate it, man. I'm going to try to get Ed on here. Thank you for the call. I'm going to get Ed on before the show. Ed, you got about a minute, but it's yours. What's up? Hey, Pete, thank you. I'm the one that, I'm the one that brought up the pharmacy thing because my doctor, who's a director of infectious diseases in two different states, he immediately wanted me to get divermectin. Hmm. He called Walgreens. Walgreens said, we can't give it to you if you're treating COVID. Went across the street to CVS. Boom, they gave it to us. Interesting. Did you yeah, tell them that you exactly. just maybe had worms at uh, Walgreens? I just I got some horse worms and I need I need the ivermectin. But your attitude is the same as my doctor. Battlefield medicine. We're going to use everything we can to get you better. Yeah, that's treat the patient. The is, what are the symptoms? Treat the symptoms. What's wrong with them? Treat the patient. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the antibody infusion is another uh, thing that they're they're using. But there's all kinds of rules and regulations. Yeah, uh, when you can get it. I, my doctor had them. Uh, over oversee that and say give him the anti uh, antibody the infusion. monoclonal yeah Don't antibodies worry about the, uh... yeah. Ed I appreciate the call man thank you the monoclonal antibodies although I just saw today apparently Health and Human Services National they're now stepping in to make sure that the monoclonal antibodies are distributed equitably so they're sticking their nose in that now we'll see how we'll see how that pans out stick around Brett Winterbull is up next News Talk eleven ten ninety nine three WBT thanks for hanging out with me. Talk with you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.